I'm Melanie and I work as an advocate and researcher for women that have experienced domestic abuse. Hi, I'm Maria, I'm the co-president of the Intersectional Feminist Society and Pus Solidarité. And uh, we're here with, with Hala and Sema from Avengers, a UK-based charity that advocates uh, with along survivors and activists. Hi, I'm Hoda Ali. I'm co-founder of the Vavinches. I am a nurse and right now I'm project lead project manager for safeguarding in primary schools. Hi, I'm Sema Gono. I'm the CEO at the Vavinches and I'm a human rights campaigner. So Hoda, are you happy to tell us a bit about yourself and the story? Um... Uh, yeah, so where do I start? So I'll start from the beginning. Um, so my name is Hoda Ali. I was born in Somalia and as known in Somaliland now. So that's where the British British colonized the part of Somalia. I mean, life was beautiful. It was, you know, we would go to school and you would run around on every Friday. That's our weekend in a Muslim Islamic country. So we'll go to the beach and just be children. Um, but we do practice over 98% of women from Somalia have been cut and go through female genital mutilation. So female genital mutilation is something we know about it. We, you know, you have a party about it. When you go to school, your friends would be asking you. So it's not something feels it's abnormal. It's something actually that is normal. Um, so yeah, we, I went through FGM and then civil war started as well. So we became a refugee moving around and, and that's how I actually ended up in, in Europe. And why would you say advocating to stop FGM is such an important topic for you? Um, it is very, very important we talk about things like fighting against women and girls who are affecting women and girls all around the world. It doesn't matter who you are and where you're from or what your colour of your skin is. So female genital mutilation, as we know, it is it is it's an harmful practice. It's a is some people would say they do it with different reasons, but FGM happens to women to control their sexuality. So why we say important, it's important to actually educate ourselves to understand what it actually a female genital mutilation is. And what is the harmful that comes with it, if it's psychological, if it's medical, but also how do we empower the future generation so this doesn't happen to them. So one of the reasons that we as a survivors is speaking out and decided that education is needed and awareness is needed is that we, I want to see a 10 year old me you know, from 20 years from now, who has not had FGM, who will never go through her FGM. Her children in the future will not be at risk either. So it's really, really important that we advocate for that so we can empower the future generation. And what were your key um, highlights and challenges of living in Somalia? So the key highlights is, like I said, it was being a child, you know, storytelling, poetry. I'm from the land of poetry. That's what Somalia is known. You know, it was beautiful when we had full moon. That was when we were allowed to play outside and stay out late at night, you know, going to the beach and walking. Totally different thing that it's like when you go on holiday, you know how it feels. So that is how it was. But the challenges was um, having the civil war um, because... For me, going through female genital mutilation, I was cut with my younger sister. I was seven years old, she was six. So we didn't have any problems in the initial cutting, but I started getting sick when I turned 11. And then as I turned 11, civil war started. So now you have a war in the country and I'm sick. And it was really hard for my parents to find and a hospital and which was I was so lucky I'm always say that I'm the luckiest girl alive because there was one hospital that was open run by doctors that was from Italy with Somali nurses and it was actually a maternity and children hospital so I was actually the first ever 
patient they had that to do with FGM. And at first they didn't even know I had FGM. It's only when I had ultrasound, they realized actually, they thought I had a cyst, but then they, they realized I, I, I have my period that was accumulating inside because it had nowhere to come out. Um, so for me, the challenge was, you know, being in hospital, being a child, but you can't be a child. You can't play with your friends, but also you're scared because the whole country is getting bombed. And so coming out of the country to be safe, first of all, from war, but also to get the, the medical help that I needed was really the challenge for my parents, I will say, because I was young, I didn't know. I know that as an adult now what they went through to get me where I am today. But at that moment, that was the challenge of just being safe, really, and getting medical help as well. And can you tell us a little bit more about when you moved from Somalia and then went to Europe afterwards? So before I actually moved from Somalia, I moved within Somalia a couple of times because the war happened in Somalia now, so that's the north. And then when the war happened, we left. So this time I already had FGM, but I'm not sick. We went to the capital of Somalia, which is Mogadishu, which is the most beautiful city in the whole world. Um, you know, we have inland, we have the longest Indian Ocean inland after Madagascar. Um, we are, you know, the Spice Island, so we have so many traditions going in and out. You know, we had everything you can imagine, um, you know, so it was such a beautiful, but of course the civil war happened and you have to live and you have to find um, the help and the support that you need. So, <laughs> I kind of, I think I answered the question, but sometimes I'm in a puzzle as well, so my mind goes <laughs> blank. <laughs> and um, can you tell us a bit more about them when you went to Europe afterwards and how you found that? Yes, okay, so coming to Europe was, um, actually the reason I came to Europe was to get help. So the doctors who were operating me in Somalia, we have to live in Somalia because of the civil war and we went to an island called Djibouti. That is where my mom from. It's a Somali island, but it's colonized by the French. So it's like they have kind of different cultures. So I was there and I I been seen, I was I went to the same hospital because the same doctors who operated me in Mogadishu, because the war, they have to leave the hospital as well. And somehow they had the same exact hospital in Djibouti. So we all got on a plane in, of course, different times and end up in the same hospital. So my care can carry on. And after that, they couldn't. So after many operations, my period will not come out naturally. So every month I will wait. They will say, wait, so your cycle, nothing will come out. So when I was about 15, just turning 16, they said, we're not going to operate you anymore. But what we'll do is we'll send you to Italy. So that's how I came to Europe to actually get uh, a medical support. So I went to Italy. I was in Milan. I was in hospital for a whole year. And so they can just correct all these problems that I had so I can get my period naturally. Um, so at the age of 17, I started getting my period naturally. But now we are refugees, so we can't go back to our country. So as much as Europe was something that was beautiful to me to come in and say, oh my God, I'm going to get better and I won't have to be in hospital anymore. I can go back home because I was never planning to stay. You know, it was always, I'm going to come back and see you all when I get better. But that never happened because now our passport is no more working. So that's how I end up in Holland. And me and my father, we end up in a refugee camp in Holland. But then dad left because he needed to fight for my younger sister and my mom who was back home in the war still. So he left me in Holland where I end up having... I was underage, so having a social worker, but living in a camp, 
um, and then dad went to Denmark and bring mom and dad over there. So I ended up living in, in Holland in a refugee camp for about three years. But I had my older sister who was here with her kids. So she sponsored me to come over. And that is how I came to the UK as well. I came to the UK, I think it was December, just before Christmas, 97, which was two couple of months before I turned 21. Um, so yeah, it was it was a journey. I mean, I can't say it was a horrible journey. It was a beautiful journey because I think traveling and going through all of those things in different countries and different language really did help me and make me the person I am today. But I survived. That is the main thing. There are millions and millions of women and girls who did not survive. And even if they survive, they don't have the, 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 the voice and the choices and the chance that I do have to even be here talking to you today. So the challenge is, yeah, is, is always there. And who were the key people or organisations that supported you at the time? And what kind of um, support would you have appreciated that didn't exist at the time as well? I think to start with, it wasn't so much an organisation. It was my support system that was around me. And it was my best friend. Um, her name's Leila Hussein. I think a lot of you know that she's the main person who's been always making the noise. We, we call her a troublemaker. Um, and for me, it really wasn't, I didn't start it to become a campaigner or public speaker or, you know, have, I knew that it is wrong what was happening, but it took me very long time to realize it's wrong. Because like I said, every woman around the world, I would think when I was that seven year old girl who was having parties to be cut. I thought two of you would have it as well. I would think summer has gone because it's not something you think it just happens to you. You think, oh, if this is happening to me to become a woman, then it happens to every single woman around the world. So it was a very long time for me to actually connect the two dots together. Even though I was sick, even though I've been to three different hospitals in three, I mean, so many hospitals in three different countries in two different continents, it still didn't bothered me he still didn't think it was wrong but it was actually talking to Layla and that was a long time ago this is about I don't know 2003 something like that so it's not that long ago and so we met her and she was like Hoda tell me about your life and she was the only person I explained to her you know I have all these scars because you know I have operations I always say that every single scar in my body is telling my story of how I survive and I'm here today so this is when she beginning of Daughters of Eve, which is one of the charities she set up with one of her friends. And she said to me, Hoda, I really think talking to the girls in, uh, that I speak to every Saturday will benefit you talking. Do you mind talking? So I just said, okay. So like now, Saturday morning, went to her place. It was a little charity room next near her house. And all I did was just sit down and tell my story, just like I'm telling you, to a 16, 15 year olds. And each of one of them was crying. And I did not understand why these girls are crying. I did not understand what was so powerful that my story, like, you know, every woman tells her story. So that's where really the seed has started. Because to find out what happened to me was not normal. What happened to me was not something that happens to all of the women. Even though I built it up, but that's when I felt really strong to, to say it out loud. Um, so yeah, if it wasn't for Layla, I really, I don't think I would be here. But I do have an amazing support. So like my husband, who's not, 
who don't know anything about FGM. Um, he's born in London. His parents are from the Caribbean in Barbados. You know, so now I'm meeting this man at the age of 23 and telling him, oh yeah, by the way, I had something called FGM because he had, when I met him within four, 24 hours of meeting my husband, he had to take me to A&E because I was bleeding so much that I was in pain and, and I just called him because I wasn't shy. I was like, hey, I need where's the nearest hospital because I'm new to the area. I just moved London from Sheffield. So he kind of knew. So it is, it is very hard, <laughs> I think. I mean, still we climbing those stairs, but it's about support system. It's knowing the people who love you around you and supporting you to say to you, yes, it's your voice and your voice is louder than you. And that's what we are really doing when you look at the Avengers and everything we do is use your voice and just think about those, the future generation who do not have a voice. It's important to be a role model. It's important to use your voice. So that's why it's important that no matter how hard it is, we have to talk about subjects that is, is like that. And yeah, so can you tell me a bit about the work you do now? Um, so co-founding of Avengers or being a nurse, those sorts of things. Okay, so I'll talk about a little bit what I do and then someone could talk about what different Avengers do. So um, for me, I always been lone worker when it comes to this work because I'm trained as a nurse. I worked for sexual health for a very long time and HIV. This is a place that is very sensitive questions you ask. We have so many patients who will come from the GP just because they're complaining abdominal pain, just because they're complaining maybe it's urine infection. And the first thing they say, oh, well, you had FGM, go to sexual health clinic. You see the patient and they're not even active. They never had sex for like, not, not never, but about 10 years. So they educate them. when it comes to an, a health professional, there was no help for for women like me they were they were not referred to the right doctors the right because the majority of them is, is a gynecology issue she don't have to go to all these other departments so it's what i learned working on the floor and i realized if i don't do something about it nobody's going to do so i single-handedly went and met with the chief executive in the hospital who happened to be our hiv consultant so i had a knowledge and you know it was okay for me to talk to him and then i got our manager like i a department manager and the id person and i was like okay so we have all of these women because this time i did work in this hospital i will do training i would like Today we're going to do FGM training and they were all like, wow, we, we didn't have trainings like this. So now it's how do we implement that so we can help the patients? If you walk in, what are we going to do? So I put those three people together and I said, right, if we're asking a woman how many partners she had, that is sensitive. If we're asking women how many, when was her last sexual intercourse, that is a very sensitive question. So why can we not ask women and girls if they had FGM, if anybody mutilated their, their privates or their vaginas, you know? So it became easy and logically to actually put up within a performer. So what we did is that we, we add four more questions. Have you had FGM? Yes or no? What type of FGM? Because there's four types of FGM. And, and we say unknown because a lot of women are cut when they are babies. Nobody, they don't even know they had FGM. So it's very important you give them that platform. If they don't know, you still can record, but you say unknown. And remember, they're sexual health clinic, so most likely we're going to be doing tests. We, we might be doing a speculum, so it'll be easy for us to actually examine this woman because of the test she's going to have anyway. And then the third place is referral. So we all know that we have FGM clinics now. We have 11 clinics here in London who women can just walk in and get support they need when it comes to FGM. They don't need to be referred by their doctors or anything like that. They just go and do that. So those are the the... Uh, the work that I do that to make sure how do we help but how do we help the the professionals 
So yeah, so that was my job. I'm back with my job now. We realize girls are cut at the age of primary school. There is no reason we have to spend so much money and so much knowledge in, in secondary school when they already gone through the procedure. So what do we do? So that is right now I'm leading the first ever of its kind in here in the UK. So nobody is doing this work we're doing in primary school. So it's working with the primary school, the whole school staff, parents, and then in the summertime, May to July, to actually deliver FGM lessons based on different topics as well. We use NSPCC, which is my body, my rules slogan. We use the pants rule as well and the rights of a child. So I can't talk about FGM and safeguarding without talking about all of those. So we talk about the rights of a child. We talk about the pants rule. And those of you who are not familiar with the pants rule is that each letter stands for something. So P is privates are private. A, always remember your body belongs to you. N, no means no. T, talk about secrets that upset you. S, is speak up, someone can help. So the children know each letter. And that is how we teach them. Also the community. So from teaching, doing parent workshop, a lot of parents were really open. Open, they would come to me, they're like, hold on, I'm a survivor. I need to see a doctor. I need, and I'm going through this stuff, or I need a psycholo psychology help. So it's really becoming a, a safe space for the women who have had it themselves, but also... Also, I want everybody to remember, this is not separating anybody in the school. This is everyone having this training. So it doesn't matter if you're from practicing community. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or green or yellow. It does not matter if your child comes to that primary school. You will get all six parent workshop and your child will learn how to keep themselves safe. Because what used to happen that FGM was said is someone else's culture. And I refuse that. FGM is not my culture. FGM is not my religion. My culture is the clothes I wear. It's the way I speak. It's the way I dance. It's the way I, I, I dress and, and eat food. My culture is not harmful. FGM is something that inherited into my culture to make it normal for women and girls to be abused, basically. Right? There is a saying... Cultural acceptance does not mean accepting the unacceptable. FGM is unacceptable. It hasn't got a place in our world. So anybody who is saying it's my culture or my religion have no place. No, we need to correct people as well with their terminology. We need to correct people when they're speaking to making it normal. FGM is something that happens somewhere else. FGM does not happen just in Africa. FGM happens every corner in the world. The only place FGM doesn't happen is Antarctica. That is the only place. That it doesn't happen it happens everywhere so i'm not saying it's too late we came afar from the last five years because now you can actually look at it in a newspaper and somebody will write about fgm but we are not nowhere near to end this kind of practices we are not nowhere near to actually respect women and girls and stop violence against women regardless of who you are and so we have a long way to go but we're still getting there i think we've done something Yes. And um, as an FGM survivor, how did it help you in your work as a nurse and when supporting other survivors as well? Um, well, unfortunately, because I'm a survivor myself, so I know the feeling, I know what it, FGM has done to me, I know that FGM has taken away my childhood because of all the times that I spend it in, in the hospital, but we know that it, it affects women so many different ways. There are some women who don't have any medical problems, but they live with the psychological problems, right? So for me, it helped me, one, having the experience, but secondly, understanding about human body, because being a health professional is something you learn, because the cutters are not doctors. 
they're not nurses they're not midwives they don't know anything about the human body this is a job they inherit from their mother from their grandmother from their great grandmother also it's the way they pay their bills so in a way for us, when we're talking about the cutters as well, this is their job. So what are you offering them to feed their families if you want to stop ending FGM, right? So for me, it's having that experience. It's actually knowing an experience and also being able to provide the support the woman need because I know they don't need to go and see, you know, a, a bones doctor. They go and see, need to see a gynecologist. They need an ultrasound. They might need a urine test, you know? So it's understanding for me is uh, it's just coming and understanding the whole thing as a professional and as a survivor is great but always thinking about is it okay because you don't have to be a nurse you don't have to be a professional but, but to understand that is it okay for uh, this world to be abusing children like that you know because when we even not talk about women children are being abused in this world and people are making it normal people are saying it's okay who give anybody the right to be open in a child's private part let alone to remove someone of it you know they is still it doesn't matter in here we teach children to keep yourself safe if you are worried if you're scared go and talk to your trusted adult but when you have certain cultures there certain things become normal that is actually are not normal and it is abusive so it's about showing compassion and it's about making sure you ask the question no matter what because i always say if it wasn't for my mouth i would not be standing here talking to you today because i can have the thousand degrees and masters if you want in the world but you have to have compassion and you have to understand humanity only then can you go and help so color doesn't come into it and gender shouldn't be coming into it you know if you are poor or rich shouldn't be coming into it but this is the world we are living so what do we do about it? And that's why I say, keep knocking at that door until you knock it down, because I don't take no. Yeah. And how would you say professionals can effectively um, safeguard women and girls within the UK? Well, that is the professional duty. It shouldn't be something we're really like asking people. That is part of your job to keep your patients safe. To, if you are community leader, to keep your community leader safe. If you are a religion leader, to make sure your mosque or your uh, uh, church is safe for people to be coming to, to, to do that. So professionals, especially health professionals, have a duty of care when it comes to all of their patients. So you know that there's a lot of them who said, oh, well, I can't talk about FGM because it's, you know, I really don't know how to speak about it. There's the ones who said, well, I really don't know because does it happen here? You know, all of, you hear all of these crazy excuses. So if any health professional is listening to this, you have a, you have a duty of care for your, for actually the society. Because when you take this job, this profession to take, you are really taking care of a whole community, a whole country. So ask the question. There is no hard question you cannot ask. As a health professional, always ask yourself, like, is, is it okay for me not to ask this question? Or is it really okay if I sit back and sit because it's so difficult to ask? What world are you living? So yes, you have a duty of care. You stand up and use your knowledge and use your power. You understand safeguarding is everyone's business. It doesn't matter if you're the cleaner in the hospital or if you are the surgeon. Everybody, safeguarding is their business. So for those doctors, for those nurses, for those midwives, the whole health professional who's saying, we really can't talk because I don't have that, there is training. 
If you don't have the knowledge, go and reach out to organizations who are providing. I have been, over 10 years, I trained many doctors and nurses and midwives, even if it's at the university, right here in King's College, right here in, 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 um, in, in Chelsea and Westminster. We train them. So if you don't have that training, if you don't have places in your, in your department, go and get the, the, the training you need. Get your paperwork in order because you need to make sure every single person in your in, in reads the safeguarding files and sign. We know that. We have the FGM mandatory training every year that we do. Why is an FGM in there? Why are you not providing? Why is FGM, say, um, hospitals, they actually do online FGM questionnaires? 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. You can't even actually write the history of a woman who's a survivor in 10 minutes when you are when she's in your department. So what makes you think in 10 minute online training will actually make your staff to qualify to ask questions? They're not gonna ask, they're gonna be scared. They're human being. So those of you who make decisions, those of you who sit behind the paperwork that like to be the tick box, have to really do a lot more work than what we are doing. It's very sad that we are not up to scratch living one of the richest country in the world. I was cut in Somalia, the doctors are trained. They talk about their women. Yes, they might not have a law that says it's forbidden, don't do it, but they actually sit down and pro women provide women the health consequences that come with it. So I think it's about time we put our and and our hats and use what we have because this sitting down and just reading about and not coming to the floor to see how it works is not going to work and we're definitely going to end fgm and we're definitely going to end and uh, we're not going to end violence against women and girls even though living the richest country in the world so people need to think yeah well thank you so much thank you so much uh, yeah <laughs>